Hello, podcast world. It's FNO InsureTech with your hosts, Mr. Lee Boyd and me, myself, Rob Beller. Hi, Rob Beller. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Lee? I'm pretty good today. And today is a very nice day. It is. It's a very nice day here, too, although it's gotten cold again, which is strange. You live with some weird weather. <laughs> well, I live in California, whereas we like to say in California, anything goes. Everything's weird. Now, Lee, don't it's be like a Austin. Ha- don't be a hater. Weird. Don't be a hater. No, I like California. I went to San Diego uh, over spring break, and it was a beautiful place and very, very nice people. What's I not enjoy to, California. What's not to like about San Diego, right? Yeah, I didn't. There was nothing I didn't like. What a beautiful place! I'm going there on vacation soon. You might like to know, but I'm not telling you where I'm going because I don't want you to show up there. Well, that makes sense. But no, I did not know that you were going down there. Yeah. So today we finally, at long last, have a guest on who we I actually contacted to be a guest on our podcast before we ever had the first episode, and that is. Mr. Adam Kostecki from Amica Insurance. How exciting. Very, very exciting. We're both, Lee and I, are enormous Adam Kostecki fans. Um, He's a friend and I think one of the smartest, most interesting people in in PNC. Yeah, and I would even venture to say in uh, innovation. Uh, he can he can hold a crowd. I've heard him at at a couple of different conferences. Uh, he he leads a great conference session, and uh, I really hope today that we're going to get a little insight into his mind and kind of the way that he thinks and the way that that he operates. Adam is senior assistant vice president of digital experience at Amica. Uh, he started as a claim adjuster years ago and has worked his way up. And he's uh, very passionate, very creative, very hardworking, and detail-oriented, and um, just one of the more interesting people that you'll meet. And we're honored to have him on, and very grateful to Amika for enabling it. And uh, I think we have a lot to look forward to in this, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I think we have a lot to look forward to. I'm pretty uh, excited about hearing it. Uh huh. So he understands claims, which is our world, uh, which is a cool thing. But he, I think he also understands all different aspects of uh, the insurance value chain and organization. And so um, rather than listening to us jabber on and on, why don't we jump in? To I our, agree. You agree with that? You okay 100%. with that? Okay, 100%. Here, we, here we go. Without further ado, our interview with Adam Kostecki from Amica. Hey, podcast folks, we are here with our very special guest, Mr. Adam Kostecki from Amica. How are you doing, Adam? Very good, Rob. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've been looking forward to this uh, this episode for, for a little while. I'm glad you could join us. Yeah, no problem, as have I. It's uh, something I've been very interested in. I've been listening along to some of your other podcasts and uh, very interesting content, so I'm happy to participate. Yeah, Adam told us um, before we started today that he thinks that um, he and one of his coworkers are are part of our three <laughs> listeners <laughs> that we, we have on our podcast. That. Yeah, uh huh. So it's, well, I'll, so it's I'll appreciate good to have a listening to this interview. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> well, it'll give you something to listen to down the road. So exactly. We're excited about that. So um, when we think of Adam Kostecki. Of course, we think of um, you know your your work at Amica. You you've been there for a really long time. Why don't you give us um, a, a little brief intro to um, who you work for and what what you do there? Sure. So I work for Amica Mutual Insurance Company out of the home office in Lincoln, Rhode Island. I've been here for eighteen years. And I've uh, spent most of that time in the claims department. Uh, most recently, I've moved on to uh, form a new enterprise innovation team where we're looking at some um, you know, technology initiatives and emerging technologies and understanding how they could apply to our current operations and provide opportunities in the future. 
And for those of you who don't know about Amica Insurance, we've got uh, 44 branch offices across the country. Uh, we're uh, personal lines insurer, auto, home, and life insurance. And we've got about 3,800 employees across the country. Amica's uh, really interesting. We uh, love uh, working with you guys and and just being part of your uh, the the juice that you have in the industry because when we think of Amico, we think of JD Power winner year after year after year. And how, how do you guys do that? You, you know that's uh, that's an interesting thing, and I, I'll say that the JD Power awards, um, as we walk by uh, the trophy case every morning, there's 49 of them in the case it's a uh, source of tremendous inspiration not only for me but i think for all the people here on the home office campus as well as all the folks out in the branch offices and it's it's great to be uh, recognized by such a a great company as jd powers um you know and i think you know when it comes to winning the jd power awards what we really Uh, look at, or, you know, I think what helps us get there is really the human connection. You know, Amica is very much uh, involved in the direct conversations with customers when they're acquiring policies and explaining and helping them understand the coverages that they need. And then in the unfortunate time that a claim happens, we're very much hands-on with the customer and we provide that level of service um, with that one-on-one communication with a, a claim, a dedicated claim representative to help that customer through the claims process. You know, I think we're really a people centered uh, business. And I think that's providing us with significant opportunities in the future to look at, you know, how does the, the interplay between humans and technology uh, and how do we maintain our reputation and utilize the new and latest technology that in many cases sometimes eliminates humans from the conversation. You know, it's, it's right. a big thing we think about here in the innovation. Right. I mean, that's kind of one of the aspects of technology is that it replaces the, the human touch or it can, if you're not careful. Right. Right. And you know, when it comes to a claim process, Empathy is a really big thing, and J.D. Power, I think, uh, has recognized that over the years. Uh, Empathy and explaining the process is something that's really important to do with a person, especially when they've had a a claim, maybe their first claim or a claim that might be more complicated. It's unlikely that these, you know, self-service online tools uh, are the channel that customers want to communicate with us during those more complicated scenarios. So we've got to figure out how we can provide that same level of empathy in the future through these new uh, digital platforms and tools. Very interesting. Let's talk for a minute about you and, and your journey uh, uh, in, in your career. I, I think it's really interesting. You basically, I assume you came out of college and you got a job as an adjuster. Is, is that how it started? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, I'm just about to enter my 19th year here at Amica, and I started right out of college. I was a business management major at the time. Uh, I was actually working as an auto mechanic, and I had uh, kind of dreams of, of uh, owning my own mechanic shop. And I also did uh, some home construction uh, in the summertime. So when Amika was interviewing on campus, at the time, I really didn't even know uh, who Amika was. Uh, and when I learned the role of the adjuster, I thought, wow, this is a really interesting uh, way for me to stay involved with houses and with cars but not necessarily get my hands dirty every day or break my back every day. So I thought it was a, um, an interesting opportunity to pursue. And here I am, you know, 18 years later, you know, I spent, I think maybe a little bit over three, almost four years as a front lines adjuster. I later specialized in uh, homeowners property, large loss uh, property claims. And then I moved out to our Southern California office, was out there for about two years as a supervisor. And then I've been back here on the home office campus for um, pretty much the rest of that time. My last role in claims was as a large loss property examiner, where I oversaw uh, large and complicated claims across, I think, uh, 11 states. So, And I think throughout, really, the consistent trend with me has just been, I've always been interested in the latest technology and trying to adopt it to my current job. And even as uh, my role as an adjuster, uh, at the time, I think it was 
back in the days of the first generations of um, the PDAs or the uh, digital assistants, I went out and invested, I think it was like $650 in an HP iPack. So that and I did this on my own dime just to help myself uh, stay organized as sure. an adjuster because there's a lot of different things to manage. But I really was able to leverage that technology to make myself a lot more efficient. And the company, I think, recognized that and really provided me with a lot more opportunities to look at uh, and participate in technology projects. You know, I was uh, helping at the time. We didn't have web-based estimating systems. So, um, you know, I was helping to deploy the first generations of the web-based uh, estimating systems back in the days of uh, Marshall Swift Beck. Right. <laughs> before they were, um, you know, acquired by CoreLogic and Symbility now. But, you know, I was involved in those projects in the early days. And I really, um, another thing that I really enjoyed doing was working with our adjusting staff and helping out with training and uh, working with our employees and really helping to understand how this new technology, like an estimating platform, for example, could help them make their jobs more efficient. And then I think as a a later project that I uh, started working on, really kind of my last project before we got, uh, before we formed the claims innovation team and then uh, which later um, springboarded off into the enterprise innovation team. But um, we found a way to take maps and GIS information and third party data. Right. We found a way to, to, to combine all that with our policy concentrations and predict out how many claims would happen after a hill. That at the time was uh, pretty revolutionary. I mean, Cutting edge. Yeah, the provider we were using was still using hand-drawn um, shape files and maps when we first started down that journey. So it's been really interesting to see how that process has been digitized. And, you know, this GIS platform has become a foundation of how we plan our catastrophe response. So so, so is that something y'all are still using? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In, in one form or another, I mean, what was just a dashboard that we created, a web-based uh, dashboard that had some interactive capabilities has turned into a fully integrated product that we've got as part of our claims management system. So when a new hill claim comes in, you can automatically go into the system and uh, you know see where that location is in relation to where the hail fell and where other claims and policies might be in that vicinity and make better, higher level observations and decisions that are consistent with the way the storm happened rather than just what might be happening at that one property. So... Uh, you gave us a hint there, and that is is that you spent two years in Southern California. I knew you had a little California in you, don't you? You know, California was a uh, excellent stop along the way for me. I, I had a lot of fun out there in Southern California. Um, I couldn't get used to the weather, though. I'll tell you that. <laughs> what it was too nice for you? It was wasn't yeah. adverse enough. I I couldn't even tell the difference between the seasons when I was out there. No, and that's it, it really true. threw me for a loop. Seeing people driving around in convertibles with Santa hats on, <laughs> I, I couldn't deal with it. Well, um, so w one of the interesting things about you, and you 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 mentioned it, is that um, you're a very hands-on guy, and um, uh, and you're very interested. I mean, your your current work really flows out of your passion of uh, for for like gadgets and things and fixing things and making things. Right? Is that isn't that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I've uh, I've always enjoyed uh, working with my hands and kind of standing back at the end of the day and really seeing uh, accomplishments. And yeah, that does tie into some of the work that we do. For example, you know, with Connected Home, I, I get pretty involved. My team will tell you I get pretty involved in uh, taking a look at these new and emerging uh, devices. Yeah, I um I was at a presentation at a talk you did. Um, I think at Property Information Report. Brian Sullivan's conference uh, when you you and Gabe Halimi from uh, Flow. And, yep. And haven't you used your house as kind of a testing ground for different IoT devices? Yeah, I think very much to my uh, wife and my family's displeasure. I have um, tortured them on numerous occasions <laughs> with some of the latest emerging tech devices. I think I'm up to uh, seven different flow sensing and leak detection uh, systems that I've installed on my water main. I actually installed a uh, bypass loop so that it makes uh, maintaining this uh, system and swapping out uh, devices a lot more efficient, kind of similar to the bypass loop you might have with like a, a house filtration okay. system. Uh -huh. It's allowed me to understand much more about the installation process 
for uh, you know some of these new devices like the ones that get cut in and plumbed into the main line like flow um, exactly flows one example but you know last year alone there's probably half a dozen of these devices that have hit the market and even this year i just got my hands on a brand new one uh, from a company called stream labs that's looking very uh, promising i mean there have been a lot of advancements in uh, the technology with these cut-in devices that's really interesting and when you think about something like a water claim that's a significant risk uh, of loss. And these devices that sense uh, flow mm -hmm. and pressure and temperature and, and learn about your normal water usage patterns, the potential that they have to be able to identify when a problem is happening and then not just let you know, but actually cut the water mm -hmm. off, you know, I think is just really interesting. And, and all, this, all this has been happening really over the past year and I think the only way to, uh, at least in my perspective, the only way to get a good grasp on it is to really uh, roll your sleeves up, sleeves up and get involved with it hands on. And I think that uh, I've learned a lot about the industry and the technology by experimenting with it in my own house. So what have you learned about uh, water devices? You know, I think the key parameters, right, and, and what's going to be able to, uh, number one, engage the user in a... Um, a more engaging experience around the water usage in their home. You know, so things like flow over time, all these devices have different ways of measuring flow. Uh, some will just tell you if the water's on or off or if it's flowing at a low, medium, or high rate, which really doesn't provide a significant potential to engage the user. Others will tell you right down to the 10th of a gallon how much water uh, has been used through the house. And I think that's an engaging experience for users, especially in areas like Southern California, where the water can be really expensive, to engage users around how much water they're consuming and provide them with information around how to mitigate or uh, conserve water um, to mitigate their water bill, their monthly water bill, so they're not paying as much, I think is really interesting. Let's just say 20% of your water is being used by maybe older toilets that aren't low flow. Like now you have direct information that you can use to plan and identify if you replace those toilets, here's how much water I might be able to save. Right. You know, I think I've learned the, um, the importance of that pressure parameter and identifying water pressure uh, differences. And whether it simply be just the starting water pressure at the house after you install the device, if you see it's, you know, over 50, 60, 70 PSI, that's just, it's like, it's like high blood pressure. It's an early warning sign that you may have an issue. And not only that, if you've got that much water pressure, if you do have an issue, that means more water is going to be coming out. So addressing that with something like a pressure reducing valve can be um, a great measure to take. And then I think the other thing that some of these devices do, I think uh, flow is one of these, uh, one example, but there are a few others now coming online that have this capability to monitor pressure changes over time to identify even the smallest of leaks, I think is really interesting. Because when you think about most of the claims that we see, there's a big population that are slow drips over time that just don't get noticed. And, and the fact that they occur over time causes things like mold and causes the damage to get much worse. Right. And from the customer perspective, many insurance policies have exclusions for leaks that happen over time. So now this becomes a customer problem if the insurance company is going to look at that leak and say, hey, this has been going on for you know two months. Our policy doesn't cover leaks like that. That's a big problem for the customer. And we want to help our customers get ahead of that. So this actually reminds me of a conversation that we had with another water company. And they were trying to prove to their, their stakeholders that this device stops damage. But they had a really hard time with it because the device actually stopped the damage. Uh, they weren't able to say that we were able to save X amount of dollars because of this device because it stopped. So whenever you're testing these products, are what are you actually looking for? Is it the actual customer engagement? How do these products improve our relationships with our customers? Or are you looking to see, are these devices actually preventing claims? And again, I that all gets down to the problem that you're trying to solve with these devices. And if you're just looking at it from a pure loss mitigation perspective, something like a cut-in valve is going to be much more costly to install, but it has a higher potential to mitigate leaks. So I think 
looking at it as a pure loss mitigation play, you're going to have to answer that question in order to uh, justify that investment. Like, what is the actual lift? If you look at it more as a customer engagement piece or potentially a customer uh, acquisition tool to attract new types of business, those are other metrics that you can demonstrate right away. And I think to look at the value as a whole, including those different parameters, I think really can help to uh, push the, the project along without necessarily knowing to the T exactly how much you're going to save. I mean, I don't know what the saying is, right? Like even a catfish is right twice a day. <laughs> Just having some assumption here that and being able to demonstrate, hey, when a leak happens within X number of minutes, the valve recognizes it and stops it. You can kind of extrapolate out how many types of leaks happen like that and what the potential is, whether it's five gallon water loss or a 50 gallon or 500 <laughs> gallon water loss. How do you, one of the interesting things about devices like this, because they have major implications for insurers, as far as mitigation, like you said, is who pay, who's going to pay for them? Like some of them can be pricey, hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So is, do you think the insurer should be paying for those or should, or, or should the insurer been trying to convince their their policyholders that this is a good device that you should invest in. How do you handle that? It's a great question. And, you know, some might um, think about it at this level, right? Why would a customer invest money in their home, especially some of these devices, which might cost 500, maybe even up to a thousand dollars with the installation. Why would they invest this money just to stop their insurance company from having to pay a claim? And I think, that's a fundamental problem uh, that we have to answer as an industry. And rather than talking about who might pay for it, I think you have to look at the business model of deploying IoT and uh, different devices and sensors, including leak detection sensors. And you have to look at the supply chain and all the different points that there are to be able to monetize things through the IoT. And I think when you take a look from that perspective, from the business model perspective, and really analyze the supply chain, there's a lot of opportunity to monetize IoT. And it's not necessarily through the traditional way that insurance companies uh, make money. And I think those are the interesting opportunities. And those are the things that might help us launch some of these initiatives in a more um, expedited way is by analyzing other ways that we can um, derive benefit from these devices. Uh, let's talk about innovation and, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a buzzword. It's a big word. Um, we're, you know, focused on insure tech in our podcast and the relationship between the two, but the way that you guys look at innovation, it's, it's much more than just the cool new options that are out there, um, that are being developed in the insure tech world. Correct. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, we hear so much about InsureTech today. And by the way, I mean, I think that term first hit uh, hit the dictionary or the lexicon back in 2014. And since right. then, I mean, it's just it's in every other article and every other headline you read. I see InsureTech, it's a lot of solutions, right? And some of them are fantastic and truly uh, impressive and utilize the latest capabilities. And I think we as an industry really get hung up on the solutions and what these things can do without necessarily focusing on the problem that we're trying to solve. And I think when it comes to innovation, innovation is really centered around the problem that you're trying to solve and understanding uh, unmet consumer needs, right? Or user needs, whether it be an internal user or an external customer. Innovation is about getting to that problem uh, in a, in a um, creative way so that um, you can identify multiple solutions, you can execute tests on those solutions and identify which one is the right one that's going to move the needle, uh, rather than just jumping towards solution A because it's easier to implement. You know, by focusing on the problem, you can really make sure that you're identifying the key metrics you want to move, and then you're using those and developing a process throughout where you can measure innovation uh, and um, things like return on learnings or return on investment at multiple points throughout the innovation process. So things have really changed, like you said, that it's only been since, you know, the last several years that even the term insure tech is, is utilized or part of our industry lexicon. 
And um, so there's a whole <laughs> development of, of, a, of a departments uh, of innovation that, that didn't even exist before. And, and many insurance companies had, have had to respond by developing and creating innovation areas and departments and think tanks inside of their organizations that didn't exist before. And, and you've been, I assume that you've been part of that at Amica, right? Yeah. Structuring around innovation has been a big focus for us over the past couple of years and identifying, I mean, a lot of innovation is happening throughout our uh, individual business units and they do a great job of identifying uh, the issues and, and the solutions that are specific to their lines of business, whether it be sales and client services or claims, they do a great job of implementing new and innovative technologies that make them more efficient. I think where the challenge comes up is where some of these new solutions or potentials span across multiple departments and have applications in multiple areas, trying to spread that innovation across departments becomes a big challenge. Some of these things require large investments and the only way you can calculate an ROI is to be able to use them as more of an enterprise solution. And I think that requires a different approach. And, you know, insure tech is one aspect of innovation. Right. The business model discussion that um, I mentioned there around IoT, there's a whole uh, set of work that happens around there. Uh, there's a whole set of work, you know, we're really spending a lot of time in making investments in our design thinking practice and building out design thinking capabilities, which are really targeting at helping our employees to see things through a different lens and really keeping the customer at the focus. I mean, it's something Amica has been known for. We've really been known for the focus on the customer, but the way we do that is evolving in today's world. Customer interests are changing. We need to keep up with that. And techniques like design thinking really help us center around the user and identify what their specific needs and what the opportunities are around that user. So, you know, our design thinking practice is something that's emerging. We're trying to uh, build on that. And I think just business process, right, and more incremental innovation, there's a lot more that we can be doing from that perspective more efficient for our customers and for our representatives. What an exciting time, right? I mean, you're kind of at the front edge of, uh, of, of really, I think, a, a, significant a significant and permanent change in our industry. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, it, it is uh, exciting. And I'll tell you that there is so much happening, and especially for a guy like me who likes to be involved in the details, and I see a lot of the different opportunities I, I want to... Um, you know, do as much as we can. It's hard to identify, especially when you have limited resources, to pick the bets and to identify where you need to invest your time and efforts. And that's a big thing that uh, I think we're continuing to learn as our enterprise innovation function is growing, is where are the areas that we can help with the organization the most, right? And then getting centered around those versus just launching a number of different activities and pilots and tests that may or may not have uh, results when they're completed. So let's talk for one second about design thinking. Can you just give us a definition of what that means? Oh, great question. So, you know, design thinking, again, is really um, keeping a user-centered focus. There's a, a multiple-step multiple process that involves, uh, you know, centering around the user and identifying unmet needs, identifying uh, multiple solutions. Uh, you use tools like empathy maps to really identify what the uh, – customer is all about. And, uh, you know, through things like business model canvas, you can get your ideas all onto one page where they can be refined. That becomes kind of the document that um, with these new larger opportunities, that it's an always living document that's constantly evolving as you learn more. Uh, design thinking is just a multi-step process that keeps the user at the center and is really centered around uh, iteration, testing, uh, and learning. And it's a design thinking is a great process to have at the front end of an agile software development process. Because when you pair up agile and design thinking, you do a lot more on the front end with prototypes. And it's a lot easier to tear up a wireframe or a piece of paper that you've shown to someone and they say they don't like it rather than having it developed and go out to the users and have them. Sure. This doesn't do what I thought it would do. By uh, ad agile, what do you mean by agile? What is what is an agile development? You know, our IT department's done a great job at uh, transforming uh, and, and beginning the transformation to a more agile um, approach to software development. And it's really involving uh, cross-divisional groups and uh, small teams 
that are empowered um, that can take these projects. It's a different approach to like just traditional project management, which is more waterfall. You get the list of requirements. You, people go off on their own and uh, develop. Agile is really a smaller group with uh, highly skilled individuals that have um, capabilities across the spectrum that can take a project from start to finish and continue to iterate on it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It seems like that that way you can get the most out of those those meetings and those developments uh, without going off of course. Yeah, you know, agile is um, actually, I guess it parallels with innovation. A lot of times people think innovation is just this ad hoc process that, you know, you get a bunch of creative people in a room and they just start uh, iterating. The reality is to be successful at innovation, you have to have a consistent uh, process and um, well-defined checkpoints throughout in order to maximize your effectiveness. And Agile is very similar to that. There are a number of ceremonies, Agile ceremonies uh, that happen, sprint planning, uh, you know, daily stand-ups or scrum meetings. These things help keep everyone aligned on the same page and keep everyone accountable for different deliverables throughout the process. So, you know, very much um, innovation, design thinking, and agile development go hand in hand. So that seems like it would take up a lot of time uh, to do. Is it is it worth it? Uh, or do you find that the teams are spending too much time in these meetings, these scrums, these sprints, these stand-ups? It does take a, a large commitment of time, and I think it's more—it's a new way of doing work. And I think the the inverse um, is very dangerous in today's world, right? When um, you sit around a conference room table with a bunch of business people, and you develop a concept, and you develop requirements, and you pass it off to a team that might take you know six months, a year, maybe two years to develop and deploy it. By the time that product hits the market, you've made such a large investment that if you haven't hit the mark, it can be very costly. So, you know, through um, these iterative processes like design thinking and agile development, you can test and learn along the way. So that de-risks the whole uh, development process and ensures that what you're actually gonna launch is gonna have value and is gonna meet the needs of the customer. You know, whereas traditional waterfall, things change so quickly today that that approach has a lot of risk to it. Yeah, with all of that, I, I, I completely agree with you that um, things go so fast. In the world of innovation, change is an everyday occurrence. Um, so I appreciate you giving us a look into that and kind of the way that y'all operate. I started thinking, what, you know, you, you said that you were out there trying to find, you know, uh, the answer to the problem. You're identifying the problem. What are what is one of the big problems that that you're trying to find a solution for today? Well, you know, there are a lot of them, um, you know, and I think central to um, one of the big um, problems and future opportunities is really the changing consumer and the evolution of how people consume things. It's changing, you know, from an asset driven people owning assets, you know, houses and cars to where, you know, people are now wanting the experience from them. They just want the ride or they just want the vacation or, you know, whatever. The the culture and the economy is really shifting towards this experience-driven world as opposed to owning assets. And, and because you own them, you need to insure them. Like, that's a big problem slash opportunity for us in the insurance industry is how we're going to adapt to this changing consumer demographic. You know, things like efficiency and pricing are always important. Uh, and you can get really wrapped up on becoming uh, highly efficient and, you know, really trying to drive costs out of the process, which is always important and, and it needs to be there. But it's an internal focused thing that if the uh, market changes too quickly, all of a sudden that work doesn't necessarily matter, right? If if you create the most efficient auto policy and then people stop buying cars, you've got a problem. Right. You have a great policy <laughs> with no place to put it. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's and it's that's one of the big challenges is like, you know, trying to figure out, you know, this, this, the uh, trends that are happening and the, um, you know, through the scanning and, and monitoring for these weak signals and developing the trends and the patterns that are going to change consumer behavior and trying to figure out when yeah, that's yeah. going to happen. I, I think that's a great point um, and something that 
is so relevant, like you're saying, to 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 our industry, to the insur- to the to the insurance industry. Um, I mean, I had a personal experience where um, my family was talking about uh, buying a second home, and um, and 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 we went down the road, and I just kept thinking to myself, "This is going to cost so much money. Uh, we can we can rent different homes." <laughs> in different places when we want to, so we can move our vacation home around. Um, why would we, why would we commit to one in one place? And, um, you know, that was something yeah. that wasn't available 15, 20 years ago, whenever it was. Um, right. But, and, and the, so the implications for our industry within that are significant and who knows what's, what it's going to be three years from now. So how do you, so how do you plan right. your company? and your revenue when there's so much, such a big question mark about how things are changing. Very interesting. Yeah. And I think like your example is spot on, but think of it this way, right? Like think about how many people are telecommuting nowadays, right? And people don't, you don't, you can work from anywhere. Imagine what that looks like to a millennial. If they can go from house to house a week at a time, rather than owning a property or renting a house, they could spend a week, at the beach working Mm -hmm. remotely, you know, and they can just kind of go from area to area. They become like, it's much less owning stuff may not be important in the future as it is today. Right. So like that changes the whole pattern of how people live. And, you know, who knows whether that's going to be five, 10, 20, 30 years in the future. No one can really answer that question now, but we all have to be thinking about if that does happen, if there's a likelihood of that happening, what are we going to be doing? to address that new pattern of consumerism. One of my favorite things about innovation is you're you're trying to solve the problem, but you're trying to solve the problem that might not even exist yet. And so it sounds like you spend a lot of time thinking, where are we going to be in, in a month or five years? And what will the problems be then? Because the actions that you take today uh, will be in effect when those problems arise. So it seems like it's it's a very fun job, but it's a very stressful job because you're a little bit of a of a fortune teller. Is that right? Yeah, I mean that's exactly it. And I think you know to try and look from today into the future will give you one perspective, but to try and put yourself in the future and look back to see how that might apply to today, I think um, gives you an entirely different perspective. And think think about autonomous vehicles. Everyone in the industry talks about autonomous yep. vehicles and how self driving cars are going to eliminate accidents. Take a step back from that and just look at the cars that are hitting the road today with collision avoidance technology. You know, collision avoidance technology and making my vehicle stop instead of rear end the vehicle in front of me, right? So many accidents happen because I'm not paying attention and I rear end the vehicle in front of me. If I can just eliminate that one scenario, there's going to be a notable change in accident frequency. And this technology is here today. And it's just in the new car fleet, right? And you think about like back in the days when airbags came out, it took 30 years or so for airbags to go across the whole fleet and really make a difference on injury claims, right? What happens when somebody comes up with a device that's low cost that can be retrofitted into existing cars and give them this autonomous vehicle or or collision avoidance feature of stopping from rear-ending the car in front of me, right? And right now we're, we're doing things like, hey, let's monitor for distractedness in driving, right? That's a symptom. The problem is my car rear ends the vehicle in front of it because it doesn't recognize, right? And distraction, it may not be as important if my car could just do that. So maybe that's the problem I want to solve rather than mm-hmm. people texting while they're driving. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I love that. I love that. Um, uh, the, the, what Lee said about being a fortune teller and, you know, we're in, in just on our podcast and in our work, at 470, you know, we're popping around to all kinds of different things. And, um, sometimes like with carriers, we have to follow what you're doing. Um, but, uh, there's, (laughs) it's a vast big world. Are you involved in, um, looking at and shopping through insurtech companies? Are you, uh, involved in your work in staying abreast of what's new and what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. And on the innovation team, um, 
We've got uh, a great individual that helps us to scan uh, the environment and really helps us with this, uh, the innovation partnerships. Uh, I'm sure she's listening, Elizabeth Vincent. She's a great asset to our team and she does a great job kind of keeping an eye on that external marketplace and helping us to coordinate these relationships and partnerships. I mean, I think that's been a big trend with InsureTechs where they initially came out on the market, the talk was all about how they're going to disrupt us and put us all out of business. Correct. And here after years, the, the conversation is shifting to this partnership model. And I think we could all stand to learn a lot from these partnerships. And the more that we can be external facing and not just internal facing, trying to solve all these problems on our own, I, I, the partnerships make sense. But I, I think you also have to be cognizant that while some of these things might be easy, and quick if you partner you got to be cognizant of the business model and how much of the value you really want to capture right you know like think about um apple when they launched the ipod it was all about the problem they were trying to solve right there were other companies that launched mp3 players the problem they were trying to solve was cds skipped in a walkman uh, so they just wanted to create a digital media player that wouldn't skip whereas apple looked at it and said hey I, I want to make the music listening experience much better. And by doing that, they created an ecosystem in iTunes that allowed them to monetize much more than just the cost of this device. And that's really right. where they made their money is off that ecosystem. So as an organization, when we examine these business models, we have to be cognizant of that. And in some cases, we want to be intentional and protect different areas of the supply chain or the value chain that makes sense to us rather than just partnering because it's easy. So it sounds like whenever you're partnering with these companies, you're looking to make sure that they're actually solving uh, a, a problem, that they're, that they're really out there, you know, doing something good. What are some other at attributes you look for when partnering with some of these insure tech companies? You know, that's a great question. I think um, the, the founders and the leadership team is always an important thing to look at and some of their past success. I think, do they have a, a novel concept or a novel approach? to solving this problem. Um, certainly, is there any IP or patents involved that protect their solution so that uh, if it becomes well-known, they can protect it? Um, you know, there's a lot of factors, you know, how large the team is, how early on they are. You know, we've got to make sure that they make a fit with our organization. Um, and, and, you know, how risky the solution might be. Does it provide reputational risk? There's a, there's a lot of different factors that we have to look at before we can really embark on uh, these partnerships. And again, it really depends the severity. If it's a simple solution with low risk, you know, the, the level of uh, scrutiny is a lot different than if it's, you know, something like a core system or a platform. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, and, you know, we, we get to interview a lot of different companies and we get to interview a lot of generators and, and venture capitalists and, that, that's really what it's about. It's about building the partnerships and then putting yourself with those like-minded people who are, who are going to be able to work with you, uh, not against you, right? So it's really about seeing and making sure that everybody's on the same road, on the same path that can really build a partnership, uh, not just a, a connection, but a true partnership. So I think, you know, that, that's a great way to, to go about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, things like the AMBEST just recently announced new scoring criteria for innovation at insurance companies. So they're looking at a set of, I think, six different factors. And one of the things they're uh, very open about is that, you know, the innovation uh, that you develop doesn't have to be uh, done all internally. It can be uh, through partnerships or it could, can be you adopted can, from an external. You, you can buy it, basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that that decision, build, buy, or partner, is something that's so important to get right throughout these different um, platforms or you know whatever it is you're looking to do. You, you always have to think, do we want to build this on our own? Do we want to buy it from someone else? Or do we want to partner to create it? Really important decision to make. Let's talk about the AM Best criteria. What can you uh, share with us about what you know about that? It's a it's a uh, brand new criteria. I think actually the commenting for it may have just um, just closed the public commenting, but it's a criteria. I think there are six different factors that look at things like leadership and culture, 
uh, and whatnot on the input side. And then they also focus on the output side, which is, you know, by looking at uh, results and the level of transformation. And I think um, the interesting thing when you look at the equation and anyone I, I believe can go and download this uh, report from the AM best site and I'd encourage any other innovators out there to definitely look at this uh, set of criteria. What's interesting is when you look at the equation, they've taken all six of these factors and plugged them in, you score each one individually. But what they've done is they've taken the output side. There's only two factors there, but they've doubled it. So what they're, the message they're sending here is that innovation isn't just about all the activity and all the cool stuff that you can do. Innovation is about the results that you get through successful deployment and operationalizing it. So it's not just, uh, can, it's not just uh, can you do it, it's can you do it well. Right. You know, and things like launching pilots and conducting experiments and um, you know, doing design mm -hmm. thinking trainings, those are all like activities and they're important activities to monitor at the beginning of the innovation process. But really you need to make a shift to start looking at what are the metrics we need to monitor that measure results in the output? What is What are we getting from all this activity? And where is the value across the organization, whether it be, you know, a, a quicker claims process, whether it be uh, better pricing to target better customers, you know, uh, much higher growth levels, is it, you know, uh, higher customer engagement scores. Like, what are those key metrics that we're looking to move through these different initiatives? Yeah, it's we've been involved in many pilots uh, at our company because one of the kind of our strategic initiatives is to be innovative, to be considered innovative, to be willing partner in trying stuff. And the 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 pilots that we've been involved with, and we've been involved with many that have failed are kind of like what you're saying and that is is that we've we've been overwhelmed right not focused not clear enough the scope crept out we weren't measuring the right things and so instead of maybe getting a lot out of it even if it wasn't successful it 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 becomes an uncomfortable kind of failure and uh yeah, that's, that's, you know, been a problem for us. Yeah, and I think the key to remember when you're talking about pilots, it's so tempting um, to look at some of these solutions, especially the really comprehensive ones, and say, oh, look, right. it, we'll be able to test A, B, C, D, and F. You know, we want to get an idea on what all these different things mean. Um, but one of the con concepts that I've um, become aware of that's been really helpful is the concept of um, a rat, right? We've all heard of MVP, right? The minimum viable product. Well, the rat is the riskiest assumption test. And when you're going to launch these pilots, you want to identify the one, maybe two most important things that you need to demonstrate through the pilot. And then you want to structure the the test as lean and mean as possible as you can to answer those one or two main things. Because you know what, if the pilot is, uh, the success of the pilot is contingent on factor A, all you need to do is disprove that factor and then you move on to the next one, right? And then it's a matter of uh, identifying these assumptions and lining up experiments aimed at the assumptions to, to either validate or invalidate them and continuing to learn along the way. And it's something that we, I think we can all uh, learn from. We're certainly, uh, among our team, we do a lot of this pilot activity. We're definitely looking at the way that we do that so we can be more efficient in the future. Um, you used the term innovators, we innovators. Uh, is, there a, is there a network of innovators out there that, that you're a part of? That's a good question. I mean, uh, there's a lot of um, lot of groups and whatnot on LinkedIn that I follow when it comes to innovation. Um, you know, there are a lot of great organizations. I'll give a shout out. Uh, innovation Leader out of Boston is an amazing organization that um, puts together corporate innovators across multiple different groups in different industries, and, and they do events a number of times throughout the year. They have great publications, a lot of great information. Um, you know, that bring bring these innovators together. And what you find at these uh, groups is it's the same problems that everybody's struggling with. 
whether it be resource constraints, whether it be not fully understanding the problem, sure. you know, um, pilot hell, what they call sometimes just continuously uh, going through pilots. Everyone struggles with the same problem. So this cross industry approach is really helpful. And, you know, when there isn't this competitive uh, angle, it makes it easier to learn from some of these other organizations outside of the insurance industry. I'm very interested. What would your advice be to someone who is interested or wants to become an innovator? Somebody who wants to change their career and move into innovation. What advice would, would you have for them? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I would, I would recommend um, finding something you're passionate about and getting out there and testing and learning right? There's so much to be learned through experience and, you know, getting, you know, rolling up your sleeves and, and getting involved, you know, um, find something you're passionate about, becoming an expert in it through this experimentation and become the resource that people want to come to and ask questions and, and learn more. Uh, and, you know, just pick something that everybody cares about, you know, or pick, pick an issue that um, people care about and then go as deep as you can on it. Interesting. So it's a, it's about passion. I, 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 I would agree with that. I, I think that that's well said. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Passion is important and people on my team will tell you I'm a passionate guy, but sometimes it can become an overused skill, right? And you really, you can't be too passionate, right? Especially on innovation. Sometimes passion turns into Hey, solution A is the way to go. We got to move this forward. Absolutely. And you need to be ready at any point to say, you know what, solution A isn't the right thing. Let's move on to the next thing. So sometimes being too passionate can be a negative. Mm -hmm. When we're done, uh, you you brought something up about empathy maps. I, I gotta I, I gotta hear about empathy maps at some point in time. I think my wife wants me to put together an empathy map. I want you to put together an empathy map. <laughs> no, that ain't happening. You get none of my empathy. Sympathy, yes, <laughs> for having to work with me. But uh, we want to ask one more question, and that is about uh, conferences. You, uh, you're a frequent speaker at conferences, but that means you're also a frequent attender of conferences. Uh, share, can you share with us some of the conferences you like, or that you think are important, or maybe that you don't like to miss? Sure. You know, I think um, I'll give a shout out to the folks at PLRB, their conference series, especially the uh, claims conference every year. One of the most well-attended events. Great for uh, networking and, um, you know, bumping into folks like you guys over at 470. Um, from an innovation perspective, again, I'll, I'll mention Innovation Leader. They're a great organization. They run a, a number of great innovation-focused events. Uh, there's a series, typically it's in Boston every year, FEI, Front End of Innovation, that again is really focused across industries on innovation. That's a great uh, series of events. Uh, InsureTech Connect is a great way to kind of keep up, although I, even myself, I, I, I um, go to those events. It's overwhelming, uh, the, the amount of people and the amount of solutions there. It's, uh, that's, a, that's a really big event. Um, OnRamp. Uh, insurance is uh, another one that we try to get to every year. Great uh, format of that with a combination of the panel mm -hmm. discussions as well as the one-on-one -on -one meetings with startups. Uh, you know, that's another thing, like just attending conferences, there's so many great ones out there. It could be a full-time job. Yeah, uh, it's funny what's happened in the conference landscape uh, in our industry in the last few years. I mean, three, four years ago, there were a few. And now there are so many, and I think that that's reflective of what's gone, going on with innovation and InsureTech in particular, um, is that there's so much new information, there's a lot of opportunity uh, for different conferences to emerge and be important, uh, and, 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 and we see that. I mean, on-ramp, ITC, these, are, these were conferences that weren't around five years ago, um, and there's more. And, uh, um, you know, I, I usually see you at property information report, which I also yep. have enjoyed through the years. Yeah, that's certainly one of my, uh, one of my most, uh, 
One of, one of the events I'm most interested in attending, the auto insurance report. I haven't made my way to the auto insurance report uh, event, but I definitely am uh, going to have that on my list. Brian Sullivan does a great job with those uh, different events. And it doesn't hurt that it's, you know, on a cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean either. So. Yeah, it's, it's nice to get back to Southern California maybe once or twice uh-huh. a year. Uh huh. I want you to start letting me know when you're in California so that I can uh, um, uh, make sure that you get the proper approvals and uh, visa. Because, uh, <laughs> we, we like to be careful about how, who we let out here in our little crazy world. But, um, well, listen, we are thrilled and honored to have had you today. And um, we thank both you for your time and your effort and Amika for making you available to us. And, um, I'm going to ask you the most important question. And that is, would you come back again as, um, the world continues to evolve and change and be willing to talk with us? You know, Rob, I always appreciate catching up with you at the different events. We bump into each other and, you know, happy to, uh, potentially come back as another guest for sure. We, well, we would appreciate that, and um, we will, uh, we'll see you at the next one. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Lee, I really enjoyed talking to Adam. That's an interview that we've waited a little while to, to get in, and Adam's a friend and, most especially, a really interesting man. Oh, I had a great time talking to Adam. He, uh, you know, I first met Adam at a conference at a, at a, uh, insure tech conference a couple of years ago. And ever since then, he's just, he's a very engaging person. He's a great very. guy to talk to and he really gets my mind going. He gets me thinking outside of the box. Yeah. When I think about the, uh, unusual and unique people in the business, he's one of them. And, uh, I'll never forget one time I was having lunch with him at a conference and, he was showing me picture. We were talking and we were talking about what his hobbies and whatnot. And the man is an accomplished, uh, home improvement guy. And, um, he takes that passion that he has and lives it in all, in all the aspects of his life. And his work is no exception. I mean, the man has gone from being just a insurance adjuster all the way to, um, a key person in the innovation area at Amica. And that's based on this, this, you know, this intense passion that he has. Yeah, I really find that a lot of the people who um, are great at what they do, you know, it's their job is not just an eight to five job. They take their passion. They take their their in this in this case, he'll take his innovative skills right. uh, and his love of technology and his love of IoT uh, right. into his personal life, and that's really mm-hmm. what makes a person so good at what they do. You know, I would say Amika is, is lucky to have him and lucky to have him. And then Amika is a great place for him to be at. And, and I was very uh, struck by the term innovator, um, as almost a new age job title, um, in our industry, uh, with the development and the, the coming on of a whole new discipline and department in in carriers and that is the innovation department and if you are a leader in that you your your title's an innovator and that's i think uh i mean i know he has uh, other titles he's a uh, assistant vice president whatnot but but the man he he's a professional innovator i liked how he was telling us about uh am best uh developing a criteria to look at innovation departments kind of being able to to rate and decide who's doing a good job at innovating, which is interesting because innovative is being innovative is a lot of time outside the box. So how do you actually capture that and, and grade it? But it's such a big market and such a big um, group within companies that AM Best decided we need to look at this. But and not actually, just, but but not just do they have poor? Can they pour a lot of money in it and have a lot of people working there? Like, right. like Adam said, is it a well-defined process? That's right. So that it, so that it accomplishes more than just being able to use a new technology, but, but all the strategic impl- implications that surround right. it. Right. Right. Uh, you know, a, a department can say, you know, a company can say we have a innovation department, 
but one that actually does what Adam's group does with their agile development, with their design thinking, uh, with their, their testing of products, with their moving forward with ideas. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, that is what an innovation department should be doing. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, I'm excited to see kind of that AM best where that comes out at. Um, well, we uh, are super grateful to him for being with us today. And, um, uh, and, and I really hope we, we have him again. And, and frankly, I hope we can hear from some other innovators at some other carriers. And if you're one of those people out there, please contact us. We'd love to have a conversation with you on our podcast to continue to build on um, the information and the ideas that are going on inside of carriers in, in, in the world of innovation. And so we thank you for being with us today and remind you that the best way that you can support us is by subscribing to our podcast and just listening. Give us your feedback. If you'd like, you can reach us at FNO at 470 claims.com. And that's it for today. And what do we always say at the end, Lee? Bye, everybody.